Welcome to Mission 150. Today, we will be talking about John Nevins Andrews. Welcome. We're glad to have you with us. And we're especially delighted to have as our guest, Dr. Gilbert M. Valentine, who recently retired from La Sierra University, but still teaches as an adjunct in its HMS Richards Divinity School. Dr. Valentine is a distinguished historian of Adventism, having authored biographies of the first generation of leaders, with his biography of John Nevins Andrews, and a biography of a second generation leader, William W. Prescott, and he's published several other books as well. His published work ranges from the mid-19th century to the 1970s. Gil Valentine, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to join you. Gil, today we're talking about John Nevins Andrews. Who was he? What can you tell us about him that sets us off for this conversation? Sure. Thanks, Sam. Uh, John Nevins Andrews was a giant of a, a church leader. He was a New Englander who could trace his uh, family line back through seven generations to um, about 1630, just about a decade after the Mayflower arrived in America. And his forebears had been involved in the War of Independence and some Indian Wars. He himself was born in 1829 in the little town of Poland in Maine, south central Maine, about 40 miles inland from Portland, where Ellen White was living at the time. He was about two years younger than Ellen White, so he was kind of a kid brother to Ellen White. Um, in 1842, in his town, uh, Joshua Himes had come preaching the news of the Second Advent. Joshua Himes, of course, William Miller's lieutenant. Yes, the publicist for, for William Miller. I love Joshua Himes. He's the communications guy. Joshua Himes is the communication director for the Millerite movement. Absolutely. Communication director par excellence. Yes. <laughs> and he was a good preacher. Um, and... Uh, he persuaded uh, John Andrew's parents, Andrew and Sarah, of the truth of this good news of the Second Advent. John Andrews was about 12 years of age at the time. Then a little later at some Methodist camp meeting, because uh, John Andrew's parents were good, solid Methodists, they'd been at a camp meeting and some other Millerite preachers came through. 1843, that was. So John withdrew from, from school and became involved in active witnessing at the age of 13. Um, so wow. it was a school dropout, eh? <laughs> yeah, it was a school dropout. <laughs> Committed to the Adventist cause. He dropped out of school and wanted to witness to his neighbors. Became a little unpopular for, for doing so. At 14, he experienced the disappointment. He uh, spent that night, October 22, the home of his neighbor, Marion Stoll. She was a a friend about the same age, and it was a bitter experience. And the, um, the Andrews family didn't actually handle the disappointment very well in the months after October 22, 1844. They fell into some odd uh, religious practices and became extreme in some ways as they tried to make sense of, of this huge emotional trauma and, and uh, the loss of their faith. And yet they, they tried to hang on. They kept meeting together until about 1847, two or three years afterwards, and then they just became discouraged and, and stopped meeting, kind of quarreling amongst each other and, and that sort of thing. But John Andrews didn't 
lose, become discouraged? He didn't. Well, he did and he didn't. Um, he he kept holding on to faith until Ellen and James White came to visit his village in 1847 and, and encouraged them to hold on. And then they came back again in 1849. This time, John Andrews was 20 years of age. And at that very important meeting in his hometown in Paris Hill in Maine, uh, John Andrews was reconverted, in a sense, to this new cluster of beliefs that mm. James and Ellen held on to so tightly. And he committed himself to the cause that James and Ellen represented and then followed them. He became a member of the publishing team of the new journal. That, uh, so he, he became a Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping Adventist. He had been a, an Adventist, a Millerite Adventist, but now he's become a Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping Adventist. Yeah, he had been a Sabbath-keeping Adventist in 1845 because that's when he started keeping the Sabbath oh, right. a year right. after the disappointment. But he, he committed to the, the distinctive cluster of truths that, that Ellen and James brought. The, the conditional immortality of the soul, the sanctuary, and so forth. So he, yeah. he embraces the whole package in 1850. Yeah, that, that, ex, ex, that attempted to explain the disappointment in new ways. You know, the shut door that, that held to uh, the fact that God was in the movement and he was leading them. And uh, so he, he became a member of the review staff, a consulting editor with James, and stayed with them right through for the rest of his life. James and Ellen were, were permanent features of his life from there on. He became Seventh-day Adventist with them in 1863 when the General Conference was established, and he was very right. much a part of, of that initiative. Right. Now, in the early 1850s, Gil, John Andrews was one of several leading Seventh-day Adventist preachers. A decade later, he had acquired a reputation as a thinker and as a scholar. Tell us how that came about and tell us about J.N. Andrews, the scholar. J.N. Andrews, the scholar, after having been J.N. Andrews, the school dropout, Sam. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. John Andrews' father was a farm laborer, but his uncles were prosperous farmers. And uh, one of those uncles had left the farm and had studied law and actually eventually became a state representative and a member of the House of Congress in, in Washington, D.C., a, a successful lawyer. And uh, that particular uncle and auntie <laughs> and his auntie had big plans for John Andrews to become a lawyer and follow in uncle's footsteps. Uh -huh. He was a bright student. He excelled well in school, notably so. He was good at Latin and good at the other languages. But when he withdrew from school in 1843 and didn't go back, that kind of was the end of those big hopes for his uncle and auntie, and they kind of wrote him off. But John Andrews had this innate scholarly ability and became what we might term an autodidact. Yes. <laughs> he, he educated himself. He read books and, and studied and, and was a natural scholar, a very good thinker. James White described him as having a very large head, which meant that he had a very large brain. <laughs> so John Andrews, the school dropout, big-headed, great scholar uh, later. This is, this is 19th century theories of intelligence. You have a large head, you must have a large amount of intellectual capacity. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange way of thinking. But it was true in John Andrews' case. He, he was a giant intellect. And when he joined James, 
in the review enterprise, he, he began writing, well, the very first article that he wrote in 1940, 1849 for James's new publication was an article defending the perpetuity of the law. And it was dense, um, short, but was very well-reasoned. And from then on, John Andrews became interested in exploring the background to the history of the Sabbath. Why had it changed? And he found in his preaching and in his writing for the review that he was always being called on to give explanations for how it was that the, the Sabbath had changed from Saturday to Sunday. And uh, eventually over time, he developed quite a literature for himself in his collecting of library books for himself and of his writing of articles defending the Sabbath. Eventually in the 18, late 1850s, 1860s, he, he put that out in a short volume on the history of the Sabbath. And that proved to be very, very popular. And Adventists relied on it heavily. And James White persuaded him to uh, enlarge it and to document it even further and funded his research. And that's, if I may say, so Gil, that's, that's extraordinary because Adventists even today are better, we're, in our universities, we're better at teaching than we are at research. Um, there are notable exceptions of whom you are one, but institutionally we tend to support teaching, we don't support research, and yet here's this nascent movement with barely a couple of thousand people that's funding J.N. Andrews to research and to write. What's the importance of his work on the Sabbath? The, the work that uh, John Andrews produced on the history of, of the Sabbath, which, which finally emerged in its large magnum opus <laughs> edition in 1873, um, was really quite foundational. It was the standard uh, source for understanding the history of the Sabbath and the change from Sabbath to Sunday for, for decades. Um, today, it's a little more dated but it, it was recognized as being authoritative because of its footnoted sources and its interpretation. There's now new material that, that makes us want to modify and qualify some of his conclusions. Um, but the Seventh-day Baptists and the Adventists respected it as a, as a really helpful source. Was, wasn't he influential in how we keep the Sabbath, therefore? You know, the sunset to sunset uh, instead of midnight to midnight and all of those discussions and what we do and so on. Did he have uh, some influence over those conversations? Was he part of them? Yes, that, that was one of the earlier problems that he had solved for, for the Adventist community. Um, there was some confusion as to whether Sabbath should begin at sunset or at um, midnight. Bates, the mariner, was wanting to stay with the, the midnight scenario. No, no, the 6 p.m. scenario. Yes, there was there was midnight as well, wasn't there? I and mean, there was also 6 p.m. So there was a there were a variety of opinions. Yeah, and and because he was a mariner and and supposedly knew about this sort of question, Joseph Bates was the one to follow, and Ellen White followed him on on that issue. But there were differences in the community, and it threatened to be actually quite schismatic for a while. At least it had carried the potential. When do you start Sabbath? Right. So James White asked, again, James White is committed to scholarship. So he asks John Andrews to do a biblical study of when Sabbath begins. What does even to even actually mean? Right. And as a result of that, that study, 
um, the community uh, came together in a consensus that they should start the Sabbath observance at sunset, even as according to the, the record in Genesis. Today we have the Biblical Research Institute. It seems that the Biblical Research, BRI of the time, was, was Andrews. Was Andrews, <laughs> yes. You know, and, and this, is, this is an interesting, it's an interesting thought because Adventists, um, we believe that everyone has to understand the truth for themselves. That has always been the case. So asking one of our uh, members and leaders to do an in-depth study does not mean that his conclusions will become everyone else's, uh, but it will provide some kind of framework and insight uh, that we can all use to study and to see the issue. Uh, but that consensus um, obviously does not depend on that one person. It comes as a, as a result of struggling Collective, together. Yes. And there's constant struggle between these key leaders yes. at the time. This is nothing new today. Yes, but you know, struggle in a good sense because they're collectively committed to finding out the biblical truth. Yeah, yeah, and and Andrews is and Andrews is crucial to that process. Yeah, he put up a, a research paper and they discussed it in the Battle Creek Tabernacle, the, the church there, and and it didn't come easily because people had deep-seated convictions about it. But there was give and take, and and even Elmite in this episode had to rethink the way she interpreted a vision. On it because she had a vision that they understood to endorse Joseph Bates's perspective. So even she had to rethink the issue. So it really was a community uh, approach to arriving at a new, clearer understanding of Scripture. Gil, I see a lot of humility in that process, you know, humility in, in the artistry of research, because, you know, it's one thing for you to put up a research. The other is for you to put up a research that will be discussed by everyone else. So there is that... Uh, that vulnerability that you put yourself forward yep. for being um, not attacked, that's not the word, but for people calling out. Yeah, people will disagree with you. If you put up a research paper, people mightn't like it and may t say you're wrong on this point or that point. But I think the collective humility too, to say we thought it was this, but actually now we understand it's that and willingness to go with, with the, the new insight I think it's. Uh, I, I think it's. It's actually. It's. It. It shows humility, but it also um, shows a commitment to the truth. Tell me about that commitment to the truth, Gil, because you have this solic scriptura. You know, the the Bible has to say this, but there is also this lady receiving visions. Um, in, within that mindset that that birthed our missionary movement, how did they balance that commitment? How did they see that? Yeah, the, the movement valued enormously the charisma that was resident in Ellen White, this sense that God was speaking through her, giving guidance. She didn't tell them what Scripture meant. That wasn't no. her role. But, but she nudged them. She helped them stay together to respect each other in conversations, even when there was disagreements. And she encouraged the community to adopt a, an attitude of submission to each other. She had the gift of charisma, of speaking, uh, and here's the word of the Lord. But the gift of submission was just as important a gift in those early years. John Andrews had to use it, had, had to learn it. James White <laughs> had to learn it. Yes. It <laughs> James White didn't like learning it. But uh... <laughs> but that, that um, willingness to learn from each other and to submit really did help the community to stay together. And that was Elamite's primary role, 
not to tell us what the truth of Scripture was, but to help us stay together as we studied together and learn from each other. In Ellen, White, Ellen White actually writes later and says that, you know, that the, the, their process was always to study the Bible and they would do it all night. And only on the rare occasions that they didn't come to a consensus would God then show her a vision and say, this is the, the point of view. Though it's interesting you mention, you know, Andrews shows that sun, it's sunset to sunset and Ellen White actually then receives a vision saying, you've misunderstood what you've heard before. 6pm to 6pm. Yes, you've, yeah. you've misunderstood that. Andrews is right. So even Ellen White has to, um, to a small extent, learn submission because she herself has to submit herself to, you know, to what God is saying. But I think it, uh, you make a good point that Ellen White is helping them in this intensive collective study of Scripture. And that's a, you know, that's a remarkable role in and of itself. Yeah. And, and she has, as you mentioned, David, she herself needed to learn the gift of submission <clears throat> in the sense that she also learned new things from Scripture and had to adjust. I mean, there was a time in 1888 when she said the law in Galatians is this law. <laughs> you know, she endorsed a particular position. And then through study and preaching and coming together, she realized that what she'd said before was no longer appropriate here or adequate and, and that the concept needed to be broader. The law in Galatians included, yes, the ceremonial law, but also the moral law and perhaps broader than that even. So she grew herself in understanding and submitted to that process of the Lord's leading. Right. That's a great point, Gil, but we've jumped well forward. Let's go back to, let's go back in history a little bit and go back to Andrews. Andrews was a delegate to the founding general conference session at Battle Creek in 1863. Um, so that suggests that he's more than just a theologian and a scholar. What other roles did he play as well in the the church, and now we can talk about the Seventh-day Adventist church because in 1863 it has been formally established. Yeah. Andrews, I think, foremost, even before he was a scholar, was really a pastor mm. and an evangelist and, and had a, a delightful mix of, of those gifts. Did he pastor a particular church or was he a pastor to a broader flock? How did that work? He was both. He, he was pastor of a local church there at Rochester, in New York for a while and at Battle Creek, but also uh, an administrative pastor and an itinerant preacher. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. so all of those things were combined together. Primarily an itinerant evangelist who was also an editor and also a president of a conference, if you can hold that together. <laughs> that was a challenge. But that, that, that was actually the way it worked. Um, he was president of the, the uh, New York conference in the early 1860s as well as a, an evangelist for the churches in the area, as well as researching at the University of Rochester <laughs> University Library for his, his study on, um, on the Sabbath. But uh, in the 1860s, there was significant conflict in the church over whether they should organize or not. And John Andrews' conference was particularly anti-organization. They thought it was moving back to Babylon if you organize. So he had he was in a sensitive place. He was he recognized the need for organization as a president of a conference himself, although as the leader of the church in New York at least, they weren't formally organized by that time. But he recognized the need for organization, but wasn't sure about the form the organization should take. And James White misread him. 
and misinterpreted him. And they had somewhat, something of a falling out over that because James White thought he was anti-organization. But really John Andrews' passion was we should avoid an organizational form like the Methodists because he spoke of that form of organization, top-down, hierarchical, as the iron wheel of Methodism that, that removed freedom from believers in local churches. And uh, he wanted to avoid going down that way. So that was why he was a little reticent to really get involved in the discussion. But anyway, he was the one initially in council with James White who called the believers together in Battle Creek to resolve the conflict over organization. James White had raised the need for it, but hadn't put any formal proposal as to what it should look like. John Andrews called them together and said, well, let, let's sit down and let's plan through something concrete. And it was John Andrews who actually helped to formulate the documentation for the Association for the Review and Herald. And it was he who led out in the discussions on the naming of, of the church that they should put on the Review and Herald. Um, so he was a bridge builder in that sense, almost like a Melanchthon to a Martin Luther, <laughs> you know, someone who, who could um, work through the theological implications and work with the, the leader of the movement and, and help to make this work in actual practice. Right. And those Melanchthon figures, and of course, the Martin Luther in the Adventist case is James White. Those figures are always important. But it's interesting that <clears throat> later in the 1860s, Andrews actually becomes president of the General Conference, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Um, this was after James White had been president for a couple of years. And, and after John Byington, who was, of course, was the first General Conference president. In, in 1863, yes, who was more of a figurehead. James should have been the president, but was reluctant because he didn't want to appear self-serving in all of this. So he, he became the president for the second set of appointments, I think after the first two years. But it was a very stressful time. And in 1865, James White had a stroke. Or was it early 1866? Um, no. But he, under the stress of it all, he suffered a stroke, and John Andrews then became the general conference president um, in a time when James wasn't able to carry it. So he was still an, kind of, he wasn't the acting president, although he had to function like one, because even though James was ill and not very well, he still kind of had this strong um, dominant leadership role from the background. And, and it was a delicate role that John Andrews had to accept. After two years in that role, he stepped aside and James became the president again. And then it was time for Uriah Smith to have a leave of absence because of some conflicts in the office. <laughs> Uriah Smith, of course, was the editor of the Review and Herald, the church's paper that bound everyone together and was also the secretary of the General Conference. Yes. So John Andrews took over the role of Review and Herald editor during that time when Uriah Smith stepped aside from the editorial role and at the same time kept his secretarial role at the GC. Um, so it was a, a difficult era when ill health got in the way of sometimes good relationships. Nevertheless, they were committed to working together and John Andrews in his multi-talented approach was able to help the church well during that period. It seems to me that, that um, 
John was very detail-oriented, very practical, but also able to think in abstract terms and understand the theology of things in a practical way. Those people are very rare. You know, usually you either want to be very practical and get things done, but you don't think too strategically, or you're just full of strategy and philosophy. You know, you stay too high, uh, and it's difficult to know what happens next. It seems to me that he always had the view of, okay, if, if that's what we want, let's figure out the details of how we can perhaps uh, get it done. Yes, he he was concerned with the details. He was concerned with the footnotes. <laughs> um, he was concerned with, with getting things right on paper. Um, James White was the visionary, the entrepreneur, the risk taker. <laughs> and, and John Andrews helped to, to make things happen along the way. John Andrews lived in the shadow, in one sense, of James White, mm. because James was dominant. Sometimes he could be quite autocratic and a micromanager. And John Andrews had to, to learn to live with that and adapt to it, sometimes lost his confidence. He would make a decision and then we'd be criticised by James because of the decision he'd made and was tending to back off and say, well, I won't make the decisions. You make them all, James. You know, those kind of tensions make for a real live dynamic, pulsating, live, forward-looking visionary, and that's how our church grew. Hmm. Gil, tell us about John and his family. John had an interesting family. His father, Edward, um, was a farm labourer, but who came from a fairly well-connected farming uh, network of families. His mother, Sarah, her parents were um, blacksmiths and hotel proprietors, a mix there. <laughs> um, John himself had another younger brother, William, who was lame. And uh, then John married into the Stevens family. He married Angela Stevens, who were neighbours in their little hometown of Paris Hill. In fact, the families went together in this little church, um, this uh, Sabbatarian Adventist church. Um, so the Stevens family became quite prominent in Adventist uh, right. ways because uh, Angelina was sister to Harriet, who married Uriah Smith, the editor of the Review. So you have two sisters. You have two sisters who marry Jane Andrews and Uriah Smith. Yeah, I did not know and that. And then yeah. on top of that, you have John Andrews' younger brother William marrying the sister of George Butler, who oh, was the GC... General Conference president. Right, right, right. So they were all they were, they were the early Adventists were the early Adventists were very well connected by marriage as well as by intellectual and theological affinity. Yeah, indeed. And in a sense, that's how the early Christian church grew, through this network or this kinship right. network. And, and it was a very effective approach. But you can imagine, I was going to mention, David, you can imagine James and Ellen at times feeling that uh, it was just them against the family, right? <laughs> the connected, extended family. So the politics of that became interesting. Sounds like a local church to me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about John and Angelina's marriage and their, and their family. Yes. John and Angeline had two children, Mary and 
um, Charles. They actually had two others who didn't, one didn't survive birth and the other who, who died at the age of, I think, 18 months. Right. Tragic circumstances. John himself lost his wife, Angelina, um, at the age of 48. She was 48, died in 1872, just a couple of years before he went. To what happened? Wife. She suffered a stroke. And, at the uh, age of 48? In, just at the age of 48. Yeah. And, and John Andrews felt that severely uh, from a couple of bases. Uh, one, he had been away from home uh, many, many months at a time, sometimes years at a time in his evangelistic wow. work. So he, he felt, in a sense, that he'd neglected his, his wife. And yet they were very close. Um, there was also tensions between the Stevens family and the James and Ellen White family that went back beyond Angelina and Uriah and, and Harriet. So there were always some level of reserve there between the families. And when John Andrews married Angelina, it took a while for Ellen White to come to terms with that. <laughs> Um, so those those kind of family dynamics were in the background. So when when Angelina died, um, John Andrews felt it really badly, and I think looking at it back from our perspective now, he experienced a, a period of unresolved grief that that mm. kind of created some difficulties for him later in life. I think you mentioned that he had a lame brother. Tell me more about that. Yeah, that lame brother William. I think had been injured with a childhood accident um, when they were on the farm out in Iowa. Um, but uh, he he grew, he overcame the handicap, became a businessman, um, worked on a farm for a while, and then he became the owner of a coal mine, would you believe, that John Andrews helped him to, to purchase. Um, and uh, this was out in Iowa. And his side of the family was closer to the George Butler side of the family. Mm -hmm. I, Butler, of course, was president of the Iowa Conference before he became general conference president. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they live not far away in the same same town, Walk-On. Is that how you pronounce it? Walk-On, I think so. Walk-On, yeah. Iowa. Something, I don't <laughs> know. All of this, you know, reminds us of how in the 19th century, um, when public health wasn't good, tragedy was not far away, that John and Angelina had two children, one stillborn, one die as a young infant, which wasn't uncommon. It, same thing happened to James and Ellen White. Um, lameness, uh, Uriah Smith, of course, had to have his leg amputated for something that today would just be treated with antibiotics and wouldn't be that, would just, you'd just go down to your local doctor and you'd be fine. Uh, so tragedy was not far away. And that's a, that's a useful point to bear in mind when thinking about John Andrews. Well, we've gotten close to the moment in 1874 when the Seventh-day Adventist Church would send John Andrews as its first official missionary, but we're going to leave it there. Now that we've painted the picture of who J.N. Andrews was, we're going to leave it there and we're going to come back next week um, when we will speak with Dr. Gilbert Valentine again and talk about Andrews' actual dispatch to Switzerland and the moment the Seventh-day Adventist Church intentionally becomes a worldwide missionary church. Join us next week.